0: Well, again, I'm just so glad to be here in the house of the Lord worshiping with you this morning. And I um, was thinking about what to, uh, to preach about this week and what God uh, put on my heart to, to share from his word. Because what I'm about to share with you isn't any of my own doing. It is from God's word. And that's what we're here to, uh, to learn about and meditate on today. But before I do that, it's probably helpful to know to some of you that I used to be a history teacher. I used to work with kids used to share information, hope that they'd retain some of it, and eventually commit that to memory and appreciate that which they learn. And to that extent, I often like to spend a little more time on some subjects than others, as some teachers are inclined to do. And so whenever we got to talk about something that had to do with war or a battle of some kind, I usually lingered on that a little bit longer, because as many kids, I like to you know, play with my brother in the yard, cowboys and Indians, and things like that. And so when we had a chance to teach about Gettysburg or World War II or some of those types of things, I always really enjoyed that. And um, when we look at uh, some of the great uh, battles in American history, some went well, some didn't. Think back to one of my favorite battle sites to visit. When I lived in Montana, there was a battle site about, oh, maybe an hour and a half south of Billings, a little place called the Little Bighorn. Anybody heard of that one? June 25th, 1876. Didn't really go so well for the United States Army. Soldiers put their trust in a guy named Custer. End result, it was a failed operation. Fast forward to another date that most of us think about with appreciation. June 6th, a place called Normandy. The largest amphibious assault in world history brokered with the Allied Coalition and the American side led by Dwight D. Eisenhower. Asked the soldiers to trust the process. Ended up taking the beach, moving into France, and ultimately led in part to um, many factors that led to World War II coming to a successful conclusion for the Allies. But in all those situations, irrespective of how they turned out, trust was required. Action was required. And to some degree... Patience was required. I think of D-Day, June 6th. We had a family reunion at my house yesterday, and I was going through an old booklet called Grandfather Remembers. When I was in the 10th grade, our English teacher said, hey, you need to do a remembrance project on a family member so that someday when they're gone, you can pass these memories on to somebody else in the family. I was leafing through that booklet, and I was reading the part where Grandpa went ashore at Normandy, but not on the first day about a couple days in. And he talked about being on one of those amphibious boats and getting seasick and having nervousness as he had to wait and be patient as he trusted Eisenhower's plan to manifest itself for the 1st Infantry Division and his artillery battalion to go ashore. And I remember reading it and thinking, wow, what kind of trust would this have required? What kind of patience would that have required before going into action? And I'm not here to tell you old war stories today. I'm here to actually preach the Bible. But I want to kind of set up some context for what we're going to talk about in Joshua chapters 1 through 6. This is a big swath of material. We're not going to read the whole section, but we're going to take sort of a, um, a time sequence and break it down and look at instances of trust, action, and sort of an overall overview of patience as God began to give his people the Promised Land of Canaan, right? So I want to talk about these three terms: trust, action, and patience. As a school teacher, it's important not to make assumptions. So I say, well, you know, Cami, what does trust mean? You give me a definition. Wayne, what does what's action mean? Jay, what's patience mean? And you probably give me a definition that's more or less accurate. But let me give you some that actually come from both Webster's Dictionary and also from a book called The Speed of Trust by an author named Covey that we happen to be reading right now in my work. Um, you may not be able to read this that well with a small print. This is more for, to guide me as I'm talking. So if you like this deck when we're all done, I'll email it to you. But by definition, trust is actually assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. Assured reliance or confidence in the integrity and abilities of another. So, rhetorical question. Are we going to see some, tr- some examples of trust in this passage today? But this will be our working definition of trust. Similarly, action, the accomplishment of a thing, usually over a period of time, in stages or with the possibility of repetition. I love the second one. Action is a thing done. Micah, stand up. Micah, sit down. This guy's good at action. He takes directions, he trusts in me, he did what he was supposed to do. Simple as that, a thing done, right? What kind of examples of action will we see in the passage today? Lastly, patience. Being steadfast despite opposition, difficulty, or adversity. That's probably the toughest one for us in the modern world today. I love the second one because it makes you sound smart when you use big words like this. Manifesting forbearance under provocation or strain. Okay, it means you stick with it you might face some tough times, you might face some difficulty, but you stay with it. So again, rhetorically, what kind of examples of patience will we see today? So here's the sitch, all right? Here's what we're dealing with going into Joshua chapter 1. We're actually going to go back into the last bit of Deuteronomy before we get into Joshua today, but here's what's going on. If you look at our map here, this isn't the best map in the world, but it's the best one I could find on Google this week. Um... If you look in the top right, you'll see uh, two place names at the end of the red line, Mount Nebo and then eventually Jericho, which we'll talk about today. But the reason this is significant is because it was at Mount Nebo that Moses passed away. All right, This happened east of the Dead Sea. And so Moses did what he was tasked to do. He got the Israelites to the edge of the Promised Land. All right? But it was there at Mount Nebo that he passed away. It's actually in the end of Deuteronomy that Joshua actually takes over. If we look at Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 34 and verse 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded to Moses. So the Israelites had been following Moses. So now there's a new sheriff in town. His name is Joshua. And he was full of the spirit of wisdom. And the Israelites chose to heed him, to give consideration or attention to somebody or something is what it means to heed them. So they're about to go into the promised land. And this isn't just some empty land with milk and honey. There's actually inhabitants there. There's fortified cities there. There's some conquering that's going to have to be done for this to all work out properly. And we've got a new leader. This guy's largely untested. And we're about to go into this kind of unknown period. We know that God has promised this land to us and that God is trustworthy. But let's be real, we've got a new guy at the helm. And there's a whole new set of circumstances about to face us. But I love what it says in nine: the Israelites... Heated Joshua. They gave him consideration. They gave him attention. Transitioning now into the book we're going to talk about today, Joshua chapter 1, 1 through 9. I am going to read this section because it's very important. It sets the table for what's going to happen in the next six chapters. Verse 1 After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. Right? This isn't Micah, stand up, Micah, sit down. This is, hey, Micah, go conquer this land. And you're going to do it on my terms. Whoa. That's kind of a big deal. If We break this down uh, with bullet points. God's saying, go take the land. Be strong and of good courage. Don't waver from the path. Meditate on the path, that being the law given to Moses, and stick with it. Don't be afraid. Do not be dismayed. When I read that, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That preach is pretty easy. That lives potentially pretty hard, right? It's easy to take a command and listen to it and process that, to have action against that plan, to trust that plan and act it out. That can be a little bit more difficult to do when there's a lot at stake lives, time, adherence to God's plan, and so forth. But, Here's what's going to happen if you do all that. As has been known for years, God has said to his people, I'm going to give you the land. No one's going to stand before you. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. If you keep the law, you will have success. Oh, and by the way, wherever you go, I am with you. I don't know about you, but knowing that God is with me as a believer gives me a huge sense of peace. When I read this passage and I think about what God is saying to Joshua in this commission, yeah, there's a lot at stake. This is, uh, this is a pretty big deal, being the leader, taking the, the Israelites into the land of Canaan. But all these promises of reassurance, which we're going to see again in this passage, provide Joshua with um, the knowledge and the, um, the confidence that he needs to act patiently upon the plan that God's putting forth. Another reason I wanted to include this map is it's very interesting. I looked at some uh, historical um, research and this isn't really the most efficient path from Egypt to the promised land, right? It kind of varies a little bit. It's kind of like me when I'm driving and I forget to put on Google Maps and I'm trying to get to Grand Rapids or something. I take a different route than maybe I should. But we all know that this pathway was largely because of some of the issues that had happened with the people of Israel. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And after um, a period of time, that being 40 years, they actually make it to the, the doorstep, as it were, of the Promised Land. So again, it wasn't a direct path. There was already a lot of patience going on here. And now they're right at the cusp of the invasion where God says to Joshua, here's your commands, but this is what I promise will happen. We've probably had situations like that in our own life, right? Where somebody tells us something, look, I need you to do this. And if you do this, and you trust me that I'll follow through, this will be given to you. If you show up for work every two weeks, I'm going to give you money. Hey, if you do these chores, you might get your allowance. Hey, if you work hard and you practice your throwing or your batting, you're going to become a better ball player. Whatever the context, here's what you need to do. And if you trust the process and you trust this and you act on it, these will be the results. And so God lays that right out for Joshua here in chapter 1. So that's pretty exciting, looking at the situation and the context in which these promises are made. God requiring trust and action. Let's look at some other examples as we move through uh, Joshua in chapter 2. Most of us know the, the story of Rahab and the hiding of the Israelite spies. So Joshua sends these two spies to scout the land. Alright, good sound military strategy. You don't just walk into the battle without know what's going on. You usually send an advance guard or you send out your skirmishers or whatever. In this case, Joshua sends two spies to scout. Okay, and we have this woman named Rahab. She's living essentially in the wall of Jericho, and these spies come into her purview. Now, it's not like Rahab or the other folks in Jericho are necessarily blindsided by what's about to happen. The Bible says that they'd heard about what's going to go down with the Israelites, and they're kind of shaking in their boots a little bit. So Rahab was aware of what was coming. Technically, she's one of the enemy, right? But knowing what God had promised the Israelites and knowing that God's plan was about to happen... What does Rahab do? She hides the spies. If we were to read chapter 2, and we're not going to get too much into that today for the sake of time, but if we read in chapter 2, we see that Rahab hides the spies in her home, keeps them from the king of Jericho, who heard wind of this and sent out basically a search party to figure out hey, these Israelites are poking around trying to figure out our strengths, our weaknesses, and so on. We've got to put a stop to this, even though I know it's coming. Rahab hides them. She puts them up in the thatches of her roof. But Rahab says, look, guys, I know what's coming, and it ain't pretty. So I would ask that in exchange for the kindness, she uses the word kindness in chapter 2, in exchange for the kindness that I've shown you, this is in verse 12, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house. And give me a true token, and spare my father mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men, the spies, answered her in verse 14, and said, our lives for yours, if none of you will tell this business of ours, and it shall be, when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. We'll revisit this in a little bit, but a lot of trust, and acting on trust going on in chapter 2. Rahab believed that God's plan would be manifest against her people in Jericho. She believed that was going to happen. She trusted that the spies would be good to their word. She trusted that if they said, yes, we will spare you on these conditions, which they outlined later in chapter 2, that she wouldn't give them up and expose them and so forth. She trusted that they would follow through. Then on their side, the two spies actually trusted that Rahab wouldn't sell them out, wouldn't give them up to the authorities more or less. And keep them protected and hidden. And lastly, we see towards the end of chapter 2 that Rahab gives the spies some advice. She says, hey, there's people out looking for you. I recommend, you know, hanging out in the mountains for about three days, letting the dust set a little bit, and then go back to your people. The spies trust that advice. We see here at the end of chapter 2 in verse 22, they departed and went to the mountain Stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought after them all along the way, but didn't find them. So the two men returned, descending from the mountain, and crossed over. They came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told them all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has delivered all of the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Trust. Action. I can't put myself in Rahab's shoes or the spy's shoes no more than you can. But just looking at what the Bible is telling us here, that may have been difficult to do. Hiding foreign spies, trusting a harlot to keep her word and not give you up to the authorities, a lot of trust there. Rahab knew the plan that God had and trusted that um, the spies would keep their word that they had given and spare her family. We'll see more about that in a little bit. I love this example of trust. This comes from chapter 3. Most of us are very familiar with the, um, the exodus from Egypt, um, the crossing of the sea, and then the sea folding back over the um, uh, Egyptians and having them perish and so on. This crossing, a little less famous historically, but nonetheless potent and a wonderful manifestation in visual of trusting in God's plan and God following through. So and to get into the Holy Land, the Promised Land, required the crossing of a river, the Jordan River. Geographically, if I show you another map here in a little bit, you'll see the Jordan River is sort of on the eastern side of Canaan. And the Israelites, if this is Canaan, are coming in this way, from the east to the west, not from the west to the east. And the reason for that, we'll see in a little while, is from a military standpoint Um, Jericho and Ai, the first two towns that they take, are very militarily strategic to the overall plan that God manifests in the rest of the book of Joshua. But suffice it to say, step one, we have got to cross the Jordan. So, we're not going to take a raft, we're not going to take a boat, we're just going to walk across on dry ground. Oh, okay, well sign me up for that. That sounds great, well how are we going to accomplish that? Well, Here's what's going to happen. God says, What you're going to do, you're going to follow the priest, the Levitical priest. There's going to be some priests, they're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant. But you've got to stay back a ways, about 2,000 cubits or so. You stay back behind them. When their sandals hit the edge of the water, whoosh, water's going to part, it's going to be held back. Then you're going to walk across. Then after that, we're going to have you make a memorial both in the river and the place where you're going to camp. Oh, okay. That's what we always do, right? We just walk across dry ground, rivers. and So again, think about this too. We think contextually that the Israelites, they've seen this movie before, right? They've crossed the sea coming out of Egypt. But this is now 40 years later. There's a whole new generation of people who haven't lived that movie before. But God is promising Joshua, look, do exactly this, act on this, trust me, and this will be the outcome. And on top of that, in verse 7 of chapter 3, the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Because again, Joshua at this point, he's wise, he's Moses' servant, He's getting respect from the people in that regard. But now God is saying, look, do these things. I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to lift you up in the sight of all Israel so that they know without a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Joshua says, okay. So what we're going to do, he relays the plan to the Israelite people. We're going to skip ahead to verse 14. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water. And again, the Jordan River at this time is spilling over its banks. It's during the time of harvest. The water is high right now. The water came down from upstream and stood still. I try to I go out and stand in the tobacco river in front of my house. I can't imagine what it would look like for the waters to stop running. I can imagine what it looks like to go down. I've seen that. But to stop flowing altogether, that'd be miraculous. That doesn't just happen. That'd be a God thing for that to happen. That's what happens. I came down from upstream and stood still and rose in a heap. Very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Whoa. That's amazing. That required a high degree of trust. To follow that plan, to act upon that. Joshua believed what the Lord said would happen. He trusted it. He acted upon it by giving that command to the people. The people trusted Joshua and followed the plan. I use this particular picture, grainy though it may be, because I find it to be pretty pretty challenging. Look where this picture depicts the Levite priest, right next to this wall of water. I can imagine holding up the ark and being like, yeah, I uh, hope that holds for a while. Because <laughs> this is uh, maybe not the most uh, comfortable situation I've been in. But nonetheless, there was trust. What you see here in the pictorial uh, representation is um, representatives of the 12 tribes carrying stones from the river, to make a memorial in the place where they encamped so that in the future they could tell their ancestors the significance of what had happened at that time. We're not going to get into all the details of that um, today, but that's what you see represented in the picture. But again, look at the significant trust in action as a result of trust that had to occur here. First of all, the priests have to walk into the river first, put their souls in, watch the water go back, then after God stops the water, people walk over on dry ground. Again, priests, they're sitting there watching this happen. They're the first ones in. Then they, get, they watch all the people go through. All the while, the water is just kind of standing there. And you know what? We as modern Christians, we don't necessarily, we can't really get our mind around what that would probably have been like because we don't really see anything like that. But just to try to put yourself in their shoes, literally, as this is happening. What a miracle. What an unconventional way to go to war, to attack something, to um, use the strategic terrain to your advantage. It doesn't just happen. God makes this happen. God executes his plan. He said this would happen. You follow the plan, therefore it happened. Wow. That's powerful. Because we all know, in the modern context of the Bible... And what we have in the New Testament where God says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the same God that moved these waters back. He gave us that promise and I know that when I die because I accepted Christ as my Savior, I'm not going to perish. I'm going to have everlasting life because that's what God's word says and God can be trusted. And if I act on that truth, put my faith in him, the results are going to be what he says they will be, just like they were when the people of Israel walked across on dry ground. After that, continuing on in chapter 4, I already alluded to this, with tribal representatives, one per tribe, again, pulled stones from the river, made a memorial. In verse 9, chapter 4. It also talks about and Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the ark of the covenant had stood. There they are to this day. You hear that said throughout this book. There it remained to this day. Rahab went and lived among the Israelites when it was all done, and there she remains until this day. You see that over and over. Now again, that doesn't necessarily mean that Rahab's still alive today, living with the Israelites, but in that time, it was basically saying, look, this is still there. That stone heap, that memorial, is still there. A physical representation reminder of what God had done. So again, a lot of trust in what God is saying. But action to follow it, God follows through. God can be trusted. His word, his commands then and now are true. We just have to follow him. We just have to act. We'll talk about patience more here too in a second. Now, Cross the river, dry ground, made the memorial, here we are. This is another somewhat poor map representation of what's going on, but the Israelites camp, they crossed the Jordan. Now, there's a period where uh, the men of war are now going to get circumcised before they start fighting or conquering. So again, I'd alluded to the fact that the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. Um, and if you think about Fighting men or men of war and things of that nature, usually you want to be somewhere in the prime of your life to be out fighting and doing those types of things. Well, the men of war that had come out of the land of Egypt, if you walk around for 40 years, you're probably past your prime a little bit and not really suited for that. And in this case, it actually talks about um, in chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. I'm going to actually read that here real quick. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. To whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land full, excuse me, with milk and honey. So, those men are gone. This is a whole new generation of men. And so, the reason I bring out this specific piece of scripture is sort of the inference that this is making. Many, if not most of the Israelites who saw God's miracles in Egypt plagues, the parting of the sea, and so forth. Many of them, didn't witness that firsthand. The major miracle that they've more or less gotten used to is manna, right? God providing bread from heaven. And so if we continue on in this passage, and we look at verses 8 through 12, So it was, and they had finished the circumcision of all the people. They had stayed in their places in the camp until everybody was healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. They ate of the produce of the land. So in other words, they foraged. Right? They found local food sources. Ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched to grain on the very same day. Then, verse 12, the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna. But they ate of the food of the land of Canaan that year. So just like armies foraging in a foreign land, they started to live off the land. The manna, the miraculous blessing of bread from heaven, that's gone. So again, we're now in a moment where A new circumcision um, takes place amongst the people. And the one particular miracle that they're most accustomed to is now stopping. And many of these people, as I just pointed out, never lived through the passing of the sea coming out of Egypt. They never lived through um, the plagues and so forth. Why do I bring that up? This is the reason. Most of us might say, well, I trust certain things... Because I've seen that person or those things be true in the past. And there's some historical context that I've literally seen. I've experienced it. Most of us might say something that we can experience ourselves or have experienced in the past is a little bit easier to to believe than maybe something we haven't exactly seen before or seen yet. Maybe we've heard stories of it. Maybe we've heard dad talk about it or mom tell a story or something like that or grandpa. But not having lived through it yourself or seen it, hmm. For many people, that's a little bit more difficult to trust, all right? But this new generation, hey, we just crossed over the Jordan. Whoa, that was a miracle. That was something only God could do. Now our man is gone, but now we can forage off the land. Multiple opportunities to see God's providence work. Multiple opportunities that don't require a historical knowledge of what their people had gone through in the past. They're living this now themselves in real time. They're living physical miracles. Parting of the sea. Um, The manna going away, but now forage being available to them in the land of Canaan. Trust is continuing to occur on behalf of the people and following God's plan, and God is following through. The fall of Jericho, the part that most people um, recall very vividly from the book of Joshua, is in chapter 6. It talks about in verse 1 of chapter 6, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. This doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say, few went out and few went in. None is an absolute term. That means zero. No people went out, no people came in. The Canaanites, they knew what was coming, they were afraid, and they did what they could apparently to prepare. Sealed the gates, sealed the city. Israelites are coming. Even though we may be aware this is God's plan, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna go easily. No one in, no one out. Now anybody familiar with siege warfare, how it usually works? You get some catapults, you get some battering rams, you get some sappers to tunnel under the walls. You make a big encirclement or an encampment around the city. You don't let supplies in and out. You make sure their food supplies run low. You starve them to death. And then you sue for terms and you have a white flag and you negotiate and all this stuff. There's like a plan if you want to siege a town in the ancient times or even in the medieval period. Most of the time it's not, hey, walk around the city once a day. On the seventh day, blow some trumpets and yell. Usually that's not the plan. By this time in world history, there was already a pretty good map for how to take a fortified city. And this ain't it. Isn't that the beauty of trusting in the Lord? It doesn't have to be what we think we know. It doesn't have to be what we think to expect. All it has to be is what God says it's going to be. That's all it has to be. And in this particular case, God's again asking his people, via Joshua, to trust him. Trust him. Chapter 6, verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all of you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass, when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up every man straight before him. Okay. March around the city once a day, six days, and then seven times the seventh day, blow trumpets and shout. Got it. (laughs) Again, think of the trust, but also think of the promise. Think of the promise. I'm going to deliver these people to you. Follow the plan. I don't care what you think you know, I don't care what conventional military strategy tells you. This is my plan. You need to follow my plan. That was the charge. Joshua. One thing that I think is really, really interesting here, if you look at this, one of the bullets here, it says stay quiet other than the trumpets. Later in this chapter, Joshua reinforces that. Hey, keep your mouth shut when you're marching around. We're only supposed to shout day seven after the seventh lap and after the trumpets. Be quiet. Now again, I told you I was a teacher. You can tell a group of students to be quiet until you're blue in the face. I mean, Kim, back me up here. 95% of the time, that's not followed to the letter of the law. Usually requires some reinforcement every once in a while. We're not talking about a class full of kids here. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about this is the plan. Follow exactly this plan, and you'll have success. Deviate from this plan. Not good. Joshua reinforces that with the people of Israel. Do not open your mouth Follow the plan. Seventh day, march around seven times, blow the trumpets and yell. Now again, I was looking for some different historical context and supplementary materials for this, thinking about okay, I'm gonna walk around the wall. How close are they to the wall? They're like archers shooting at them? Like people firing catapults at them? They're like people coming out of sally gates with horses and charging them, trying to pick. I don't know. I didn't say to worry about that. God said, do exactly this. And this will be the outcome. Okay? March around the city, blow trumpets and yell. Handle that. Joshua doesn't follow most of the plan. Doesn't follow some of the plan. Joshua follows the exact plan. He does exactly what the Lord asked him to do. He passes those orders to the people. The people listened to him. They trusted him. They acted. What happened? The wall fell down flat. If we read on here, verse 20. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpet. This is on the seventh day. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout. The wall fell down flat. Flat. Not like, oh, there were some big piles of rubble when the wall caved in and then they had to use scaling ladders to go over the piles of rubble and fight their way through. No, it fell down flat. As in like you could walk across it. Crazy. It's miraculous. Only God can do that. The wall fell down flat. Israelites went forth, everything was destroyed other than, there's that lady again, Rahab and her household, silver, gold, vessels of bronze and iron. God told them what they could and couldn't keep, they listened, they executed the plan, took the city, voila, trust and action we haven't talked about it as much. I laid it out at the beginning of our message today, the concept of uh, of patience. You know, a normal siege would take months. On the opposite end of the spectrum, God could have said, march around the city one time, take it one day. But We get seven days, six of which are one lap. The seventh is seven laps. Then we got some trumpets and some shouting. Now, if you hear this dictate from Joshua, if you're the people of Israel and you hear this plan, okay, we're buying into the plan. We're trusting Joshua. Oh, my word, the city is going to be ours. Day one, get back to camp. Okay, five more days. Day two, get back to camp. It might require some patience. There might have been some anxiety. There might have been some overzealousness, perhaps, in the hearts of the people to take what was given to them by God. Patience. Seven days. And I promise you, if you follow my commands on the seventh day, the city will be ours. The city's delivered. Incredible! Miraculous! Trust. Follow through after action. God keeps his promises. He keeps them in the Old Testament. He keeps them today. Not in our timing. Not according to our plan. According to his plan. In his perfect timing. It's all right here. He tells us the end of the story. He tells us how it works. We just have to trust and act against the plan. A couple of interesting historical notes, too. Again, I wanted to share this as just some more context. In biblical times, it's very common to create a false sense of security. So, one could infer that by marching around the city multiple days, without doing anything beyond that, may have created a false sense of security for the folks of Jericho. And as I said before, you know, battering rams, siege ramps, scaling all this stuff, if the Israelites were really going to manifest this promised land, I'm looking over the wall, I'm a Jericho person, I don't see any siege craft, I don't see any sappers, I don't see any of this equipment. What are these people doing? Yeah, it could lead to a false sense of security. There's no equipment. They'd have to be. God didn't need it. God had all the tools that he needed. He needed trust, action, some trumpets, and some shouting. That's it. If you look at some of the historical evidence that archaeologists have uncovered as it relates to Jericho, one really cool thing, and before I get into that, you can kind of see a rendering of what many ancient walls may have looked like. This isn't to say that this is an exact representation of the walls of Jericho, but a lot of times you'd have a retaining wall to hold up the earth and the side, and then you'd have an actual city wall up an incline from that. So an invading army would have to get through that retaining wall, go up the uh, incline, and then try to get over um, the wall behind it. And military technology over the years is um, constantly evolving, so this changes rapidly. But again, this may be what they faced. But if you look at some of the archaeological evidence that historians have uncovered, interestingly, when they dig away the rubble, it appears as though the walls of Jericho may have actually fallen outward versus inward. When you think of the impact from a catapult or a battering ram or something like that and the force, the physics of the whole thing, it's likely that the wall is going to fall in towards the city. This is a general rule of thumb. But here, the evidence has shown that the walls actually fell outward. Interesting. Also, they seem to have found full stores of grain in the city. Well, that goes counter to Siege Warcraft, right? Because if you're going to siege a town, a big component of that is starving people to death. You circle the city, don't let anything in or out, including supplies and water, they're going to go through their food stores pretty rapidly in most cases. Archaeological evidence at Jericho says, hey, there is plenty of food that they were able to uncover the, um, the remnants of or the evidence of. So again, a prolonged traditional siege would have taken months, depleting those resources. The walls likely would have fallen in. The archaeological evidence supports everything the Bible is telling us that was God's truth. Amen? Not that we need that, but it's interesting to see that when we do look at the science, it says everything the Bible is saying. This is what likely happened. Here's what, here's what it's telling us. Here's another interesting thing. For you war historians, Palestine is not flat. It's hilly. The Judean hills, the hills of Palestine, Right? Jericho, if you look at a map, actually commands the access point to the high ground. In war, you want to be on the high ground, right? So you can look down at your enemy and kind of command the battlefield. Jericho is the first city, fortified city, I might add, that gives you access to the high ground in Palestine coming from the east. After that, and you'll see this later on in chapter 7 and 8, the city of Ai actually controls the gateway to the the Palestinian plateau, whereby you can actually divide Canaan in two split the enemy in half and attack the South and the North. are like, that's great. Why are you bringing this up? I find it amazingly really interesting that um, hundreds and hundreds of years later, World War I, British Field Marshal um, Edward Allenby used the exact same strategy that Joshua and Israelites used. Modern warfare, this is the first war of the modern era, Use the same exact strategy. Use the terrain. Use geographic formations to make a plan. God was already doing it! He did it in Joshua's day. He gave him a plan. He asked him to trust the plan. Joshua executed the plan. Used the military strategy that God gave him. And God delivered the city into his hands. Now, for the sake of time, we're more or less going to stop there today. But as you get into the book of Joshua and read about Ai and Gibeon and some of these other towns... Israelites and the people of Israel, they didn't always follow the plan the way they were supposed to. There were some bumps along the road. They made some mistakes. They had to correct those mistakes before God would allow the plan to be manifest thereafter. But to this point, God gave a plan, asked for trust. Joshua trusted, executed the plan. The people executed the plan under Joshua. Rahab trusted the spies, they trusted her. Plans manifested. In miraculous ways. Not ways that people would have expected per military history or strategic, you know, approaches to military. The way God wanted it to happen, miraculous. Joshua trusted the Lord; Lord blessed Joshua. Rahab and the spies trusted each other. The spies weren't found. Rahab got spared. People acted upon Joshua's um, guidance and trusted God's plans. Crossed the Jordan got circumcised without getting attacked, took Jericho. And throughout this all, patience exemplified with entrusting action. They had patience in the wilderness wandering around for 40 years, patience in their circumcision recovery, patience in marching around the walls. Because again, it's not in their timing. And the things that we face, there are not in our timing. It's in God's timing. We may not always know the plan. We may not always know what comes next. But we know with zero doubt whatsoever that what God promises can be trusted. Because he is always faithful all the time. In modern Christianity, a lot of pastors, a lot of churches, dance around concepts of absolute truth. But make no mistake, this is absolute truth. And what God says in his word is not up for discussion. It's to be trusted And it is to be followed. I leave you with these thoughts. Do we today trust God to do what he says he will do? Be his word? Do we really do that? Yeah, I trust God's word. Do you? Do I? Do we all? Do our actions follow what we say? Or do we talk a good game? Do we live it out? Do we act in what we say we trust? Secondly, if somebody were to see us acting, would that convey our commitment to Christ and the fact that we trust him? Is there evidence? Is there evidence of that trust? Is there evidence in our action? And thirdly, do we have the patience necessary for God's plan for our lives to manifest itself? We live in the 21st century. I mean, I whip out my phone. I need an answer to something. Oh, boom, there it is. Tell me, what, 30 seconds? Sometimes that's too long. We get impatient. (laughs) Oh, man, this is never going to come. This is never going to happen. I want instant gratification. I want it now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to work. I don't want to have to pray. I don't want to have to struggle. I don't want to have to, you know, deal with adversity. Well, get used to it because it ain't your plan. It's God's plan. Do we have the patience? Let that plan be made manifest. Do we trust and do we take action to ensure that we are following his plan for our lives? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for this lesson from your word. We thank you so much for the clear example of trust between Joshua and the Lord, between the people and Joshua, Rahab and the spies, and so on. God, sometimes trust involves things that are unconventional, things that maybe not make scientific sense to others or even ourselves. Sometimes trust requires patience. But Lord, we know that trust also always requires faith. Thank you that we have your word, Lord. Thank you that we have your truth in front of us, your absolute truth that we can trust to be true, that we can trust as a guidebook to follow. That can be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, again, we thank you for the story of Joshua and the first few chapters of the conquest of Canaan, Lord, and the things that we can learn from your word, not from what mortal man is saying, but from what your scriptures tell us, that we can learn from that. Thank you for that lesson, Lord. Help us to trust, to act on that, we say we trust, Lord, and also to have patience to let that action work according to your plan. We thank you again for this time that we could spend in your word today. We ask these things in your name. Amen.